Hello, everyone. In this episode, I speak to my friend, Dr. Michael Thaler. Michael is a professor emeritus of pediatric gastroenterology at UCSF in San Francisco, and he's also a Holocaust survivor. We met at a Torah class, and on this podcast, we discuss how we met, how he got involved in a Torah class, even though he's somewhat classified as an atheist, uh, a little bit about his experience going through the Holocaust, but more importantly, we try to bring it to a conversation about what we can do in today's day and age. So enjoy, and I look forward to being in touch. This podcast is presented by Rabbi Peretz Muchkin, speaking to the millennial generation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rabbi Parrots podcast. I am so happy to be here with my good friend, Dr. Michael Thaler. Uh, welcome. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. And I want to say that I, I feel very fortunate to call him a friend. Uh, and, and whenever I try to figure out what to give him a title, you know, he doesn't really like the titles I give. I say like, oh, well, you're a Holocaust survivor. He goes, no, no, no. And if I say he's this type of doctor, he has more. And it's just a testament to our friendship. I realized that he's willing to have such beautiful conversation with me. And uh, I thought it's time to bring him to our community to get a little glimpse. In my community in San Francisco, he was able to come to my events and meet different people in my community. But now that I'm in Southern California and it's during a pandemic, less so. So uh, I think we could have a little gratitude for Zoom that we could get together. And we could uh, have a good conversation uh, about some things that I think are relevant towards getting out of this time, being that you are somebody who's seen difficult times and it's come back. Uh, I thought you would be great to have on. So first and foremost, how do I introduce you? Who are you? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, you know, if I ever discovered who I am, that would be, <laughs> it would be time to leave the country. <laughs> anyhow, um, well, it depends at, uh, at, at what, um, I mean, if I were applying for a job with it, send him in my curriculum vitae, you know, I probably wouldn't talk too much about my birthplace. Um, and, but in, in this case, uh, in this context that we're, we're speaking of, I think it's important to say that uh, I was born and raised in, uh, in Poland, which is now part of the Ukraine, the part of Poland, far eastern part, which is now part of the Ukraine. And uh, I guess the other important piece is that I survived uh, the war, which means that I'm a Holocaust survivor because that the war in, in that part of the world is known as the Holocaust. And, and so that um, I, uh, as we had discussed before, parrots and can can I call you parrots? And you can please, please call me Michael. That's I called you a friend. You can call me parrots. Yes. Well, that. Um, that was a very ple pleasant and, and, and pleasing pleasing and pleasant um, description because we are friends and I regard you most highly. Um, so, um, I, as I was saying, I, I was uh, I came from there from that area and um, ended up in a DP camp after the which means displaced persons camp in, to those who were born way after the war. Um, and, and then these displaced persons ended up in one of two places, either in Palestine, which was not Israel yet at that time, but it was beginning to start fighting for its life, and, uh, or uh, the United States, 
Well, as it happened, we ended up in the third option, which was in Canada. And so I uh, essentially uh, ended up my high school there and ended up in medical school at the University of Toronto. And that's where I graduated. But very quickly, I, I left Canada and went to the United States and, and trained and interned in uh, Mount Zion, actually, at, in San Francisco. That's where I was exposed uh, in 19, I hate to tell you what year, but uh, it was uh, basically in 1959, uh, I ended up in San Francisco, which was uh, tail end of the, the beatnik movement and just before the hippie movement. The hippie movement happened 10 years later. But in any case, I was exposed to the beatniks, and that was a wonderful experience. And um, ended up uh, specializing in pediatrics. So I trained in Detroit, which it was closer to Toronto, uh, but not quite Canada. And I wanted to be near my parents. And, um, and then I ended up in Boston, because by that time, I had decided that I wanted to be basically an academic physician, which means I wanted to do research. And in order to do research, you had to have an academic position, which means the title would be professor. Uh, but for that, you needed to do research and publish papers. So I ended up uh, eventually at Harvard and doing doing esoteric research on sea urchins and and, uh, and on, on liver, which was became my specialty. And, uh, you know, liver is, you know, is uh, not just good to, good to study, it's also good to eat, but... Uh, I worked on it and um, ended up uh, in Sa back in San Francisco as a professor at UCSF at the University of California in San Francisco, where I stayed for 30, uh, uh, 34 years when I decided I was still old enough uh, to know which way was out, you know, which door was had exit on it. So I, I retired in order to do something different, something else. And in fact, I got a degree in... Um, a master's in the history of science because I knew something about science. And uh, also I was interested in history, uh, which is really a kind of a non-scientific pursuit when you think about it, because, you know, you can write a paper on in history and you can uh, sit on the stove for a year and it won't be outdated. It'd still be the same history. <laughs> science, you've got to rush to publication because you're, you're going to be outdated in, in six months. So in any case, I, um, I uh, got that master's and immediately started to teach history in the history department at UC Santa Cruz. And some of you might know that campus. It's a beautiful campus just south, yep. south of San Francisco. And it's, uh, it has a reputation for being a little hippy-dippy itself, but, but, uh, but it's a wonderful place. And I taught there for 11 years. And then I got tired of driving up and down the coast twice a week especially highway 17 which is full of accidents windy yeah so narrow finally i ended my my lengthy career and lengthy uh introduction here um by uh by teaching at berkeley for uh, i think a couple of semesters um history of uh, science or history of medicine actually that's what it involved and while i was in santa cruz i also taught courses on the holocaust and in fact, on the role of bioscience and genetics and eugenics and all of that in 19th century, how that prepared the background for the Nazi ideology, which was a racist ideology, and which said they relegated the Jews to a very special place of being kind of a, the, uh, the, uh, the snake 
the snake in the grass, you know, the, now we're pretending to be Aryan, pretending to look German, but actually being uh, a mixture of um, black and uh, Asian, Asian kind of uh, uh, mongrels. Uh, trying to infiltrate the uh, pure right race and, and therefore they have to be exterminated. So that was the, the kind of background that I gave to the, uh, to this, uh, kind of racism. And, uh, I taught there for, as I said, 11 years and then finished in Berkeley. And here I am retired, if you will, which to me, just another word meaning tired all over again, retired. <laughs> Well, I, I got to say, uh, um, from my vantage point, you know, uh, I, I always see, you know, even with your nonstop uh, bombastic opinions on everything, you have such humility because your, cura your curiosity for information, for life, for ideas um, is, is overwhelming to me. Like I sit around you, I'm like, wow, I, I think I'm a learner. And then I meet somebody who's like willing to discuss any topic and see it scientifically, see it historically. And you're not somebody who's just come from a difficult place. I think you're uniquely qualified to talk about what it means to come from a difficult place and put a great life together. My ancestors had, had, a, had a similar path of they were in Poland slash Ukraine, and they got out from a similar area that you were from similar DP camps, if not the same ones, by the way, um, and, uh, and ended up in Canada in Montreal. In Montreal, not Toronto. Before the war. No, they were in DP camps right after the war. Uh, which war? Second World War. Oh, okay, okay. They were in the in Germany or in Austria. These Austria. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so so we're talking about like uh similar convergent plans and ended up in Canada before they made it to America. And uh so here we were, uh, you know, let's say I'm a generation below, but here we are meeting up in San Francisco and, and um, maybe very different people living very different lives. But, and you know, I, I just will say that when we met, I, I want to talk a little bit how we met because I think it's pertinent to the conversation. And, and also when I first met you, I never thought we'd have a relationship because <laughs> okay, we opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I came to, I was invited to come to a, a Friday morning Torah class uh, that was being taken, that was being done in like a lobby of a building. And as I understood, it was its third iteration. It had moved a couple of times. And I was told that the class had been going on at that point for 30 plus years, which was mind boggling to me that there was a Torah study class going on for 30 plus years that whether they knew it or not, puts them in ranks with the longest consistent Torah study class in the world. Because how many, how many classes are there going on? 30, 40 years. Well, now it's about 43 or 44, something like that. Phenomenal. So I, I was invited to the class by somebody named a uh, mutual friend, Joseph Liebman. And Joey's a wonderful man and, you know, affectionately called the Shalom Aleichem of San Francisco. <laughs> you know, with his, his storytelling, his giving, his, uh, his mystical leaning uh, on the way he shares information. And just also, uh, 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 you know, a special person. And when he invited me, he was like, look, I'm not even going to be there, but you're going to love these guys. They're going to love you. And I came to the Friday meeting and the whole class for an hour was essentially a group of what I thought were grumpy old men yelling at the Torah that the Torah doesn't understand this. And Jacob, our forefather, was that. And and I was like, oh, my God, like, what, what did I get myself into? And eight years later, it's very hard to not be there with you guys week in, week out. 
and and see people's passion for Torah. So that's how I got there, and that's how I got to meet you. And it was the first hour we study, and the second hour was coffee, and that's where the real fun began and the real conversations began. So how did you get to that class, and what brought you, somebody who seemingly left you know, post-war, went into academia and, and medicine and life, how did you get back into Judaism, let alone Torah classes? Well, like everything else in life, and certainly in my life, it's been totally uh, un- unplanned, and uh, it was an accident in a way, uh, like so many things. I uh, Just if I may digress for a second, um, um, Maury Edelstein, who, who started the class way back, uh, uh, as, 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 I, as you mentioned, by now around 43 years ago, um, and he's still around, he still comes. Um, Maury's uh, niece was a two-and-a-half-year-old girl who was admitted when I was an intern at Mount Zion, as I mentioned. She was admitted in shock uh, one day. Um, parents found her, you know, lying on the floor to a completely in a coma, and they didn't know what happened. So uh, when we checked her out, um, it turned out that uh, her blood level, her hemoglobin, was down to, you know, 3%. You know, it was like 80% gone. Wow. And therefore, she was in shock. And and so, we, of course, we had immediately had to start transfusions and, uh, and try to figure out what happened. I mean, it was a perfectly healthy two-and-a-half-year-old the night before, that they put to bed, and all of a sudden in the morning, it was she was out cold. So um, uh, I had happened to read a, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine on a rare uh, inherited condition uh, common in Mediterranean era uh, area people, people who sort of originate way back uh, from the Mediterranean basin, you know, the area in your southern Europe. So. This particular um, defect, if you will, involved the red cell and made it very fragile. It went exposed to commonly two things. In Italy, it was the fava bean. You know fava beans? These are flat beans. They have something, a compound in them that triggers this fragility. And what happens is that the red cells just pop off and just disappear. And suddenly you're left without the system for carrying oxygen to the brain and other tissues, as if you'd bled out, exactly as if you'd bled out. Now, um, the other thing that triggers it, in common, more commonly in North America, is um, mothballs, naphthalene. Naphthalene is the trigger. And so I came upstairs to the, to the room, and I asked her parents, I said, is there by any chance that you uh, have mo- mothballs around or something? Because she's a toddler. She can get into anything. And they said, oh, my God, you know, I just put my furs away in the closet. And, and yeah, and I, I put the muscling balls in the pockets. And sure enough, she got a hold of it. And she had the defect, which, of course, nobody knew. And we had to send away uh, the, the, a specimen to, to, to a, a lab in St. Louis, which was the only place in the country that was doing the essay for this particular defect. And sure enough, it came back positive. So there was a big thing about me saving her life and all that, uh, the, the kid's life. And they be, I became friends with, um, with the Epstein family. They, this was the brother, Maury's brother. And so through the, this, this exposure, if you will, I, I, um, 
I ended up friends with Maury, but I I left, as I said, I left after my internship. I left San Francisco and I was gone uh, for about uh, six years or seven years before I got the job in as a as a professor, assistant professor at the UC, at UCSF, and returned. And by that time, I had married and I had a baby. So um, so somehow, by some again, by probably some accident or I don't know where, but I ran into Maury again, or maybe he found out I was back. And he uh, he called me and he invited me for dinner and that's how we started up and we became quite friendly. He, we we bought all our life insurance from him. That was his <laughs> his, his business was a uh, life insurance. And and eventually uh, he said, you know, you might be interested in this Torah class that I've been running for a few years. And I said, what Torah class? I mean, I'm very busy here on uh, you know in the ivory tower discovering uh, solutions to to disease problems, uh, you know, and I, I, I don't really think of myself as sitting around and uh, chuckling, you know what chuckling is. I don't know, some of your viewers may not know, but it's connected with prayer. It's this back and forth motion that scholars, I don't know, maybe, maybe it helps them sing, think, but it always used to make me seasick, you know. <laughs> that, that's chuckling. Um, uh, anyway, uh, did you, did you, I ended up. Did, I ended up there, and I was first sort of systematic exposure to the text of the uh, what, do, what do you call it, the five books of Moses. I guess I would call it. That was the first exposure you had to it. Well, not the first. I mean, you know, my my grandfather used to take me to the synagogue, and and you know, I, growing up in Poland, uh, you know, it was inevitably exposure. To, to the Torah, to the prayers, to, um, but it wasn't anything systematic. I mean, I never, I, when the war broke out, it was too soon for me to go to Cheder, for example. So I never went to a Torah, to, to an official kind of Torah study class. And even then it would have been in, in Hebrew, which uh, uh, probably my, my teacher only barely understood. He knew how to read, you know, and he had this funny uh, um, Ashkenazic accent. Right, unrecognizable to a modern Israeli. Um, so, so, you know, essentially, no. I mean, I knew about the text of the Torah, the story of the Exodus, mainly from Christian sources. I mean, you know, it's basically a, a it's it's a well known. It's the Old Testament, you know. Yeah. And and, and the, I, I, I was, forget during the Holocaust, I was converted, as you may remember, for a while uh, to Christianity. So I was very familiar with the lives of the saints and of the, you know, all that ecclesiastical work. And of course they, they talk about the old Testament uh, as a, as a background to the new Testament, to the, to the gospels and so on. But so I had that kind of secular knowledge. I mean, I was pretty well educated, but you know, basically it's, uh, it's sort of the content of, uh, of, of Western civilization. You know, there's a lot of it in there. Um, and so I knew the story, if you will. And um, but I, when I came to the Torah class, which, by the way, had its own rules, and Joey was running it. You mentioned Joey. Yeah, and it was a very unique class. Lots of different personalities and people coming to this group. And Joey, uh, well, first of all, Maury uh, knew Joey, and Joey he invited Joey, and uh, and Joey, you meant you and you, everything you said about Joey is 
is true and, and then some, I call him a, an authentic neshoma, a neshoma, which is the soul, right? He's a, you see him and you, you, you recognize a kind of a, I won't say a halo because that's a Christian symbol, but, you know, he sort of glows with this spirituality, right? I mean, you agree. He's okay. got that, that unbelievable projection of, of sainthood. That's the only thing I can call it, right? Uh, some what's the Jewish equivalent of a, a, a Lamed Vovnik or something like that, you know, some righteous man. Um, and anyhow, um, and we became very close um, to get uh, with his mother and so on and so forth. And later it turned out that his brother lived in Toronto, which is where I came from. Uh, so on my visits home to my parents uh, when they were still alive, I, I visited his brother. And so on. So anyway, Joey was totally impressive, absolutely, because he was not only able to uh, to be an observant Jew and to actually, you know, study the Torah as, uh, if you will, uh, God's word, uh, you know, literally. Uh, and he continues to this day, by the way. Um, uh, but he was also able to draw analogies and to have this. Uh, amazing um, associative intelligence. You know, he would come in with a little bag of books and he would do the Parsha, you know, the, the, the portion of the Torah of that week. And suddenly, you know, some, some line or some quotation would come up in the text and he would pull out a book by a, 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 a German playwright from the 18th century, Schilling or somebody or Schiller, or, you know, um, and he would oh, flip open the pages and he would say, Oh, this general in this play, you know, uh, made this speech in the middle of Act Three, and in this speech he cites this line. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so he had this fantastic, uh, uh, you, you know, universal knowledge of of of, um, of Western literature. Uh, li you know, and and he had a degree in the library, by the way. So so he he knew his books, if you will, and and so that was so impressive to me that I could see there would be a place for a guy like me who was coming in from, you know, from, from the storm outside and uh, could relax inside and actually enjoy it and get something out of it. And as time went on, I became really, really impressed with the text. And I continue to be uh, as perhaps the, the greatest, not perhaps I, I personally am, as you said, I tend to be bombastic and opinionated, meaning that sometimes I have black and white opinions. Um, well, in this case, I have a completely black or white opinion, which is that this is absolutely the greatest literary masterpiece the world has ever seen. Literary masterpiece. So, yeah, let's let's talk let's let's talk a little let's talk a little bit more about that because I, I really think and part of the reason why I wanted to have you on is. It's like I try every way I could to tell people in my community that they're not going to be able to fully realize themselves in their lifetime without some sort of external effort, whether it's therapy, whether it's, you know, real growth, real mentorship, etc. And as a Jew, you should see yourself as fortunate because along with, you know, the the tradition and the and the and the peoplehood there's a Torah. There's literally a book chronicling the way we've seen the world, and it's layered and layered for every scenario, essentially, and how one could 
essentially get over it and more importantly thrive no matter what the circumstances are and and that itself to me was always the most remarkable part about torah is that it feeds every type of brain it's really sitting there trying to push people into a position where they're uncomfortable about life enough to question reality and then when they question reality realize that oh i have ancestors who had these questions as well and that was able to help push them over into forward times. In other words, I stop seeing the Torah as an ancient concept, and I see it as this living, breathing uh, a literature and and an expression of divinity, from my point of view, that is that is etern- that is timeless. And maybe now that we're going through a very, very difficult time, it's time for people to take a look. And that's really why I wanted to have you on. I thought maybe what a great person to say, like, I, I didn't grow up with it necessarily. I saw the world go backwards and I joined the Torah study class and and what did I take out of it? Like what really came to mind from this studying and how did it help you? I think is very interesting. Well, the uh, as you pointed out, uh, it has contempt. It still has uh, resonance in contemporary life. That that's that's a key point. We're not just sitting there studying ancient history or or reading Herod's uh, you know exploits or or Homer's uh, the story of the Trojan War which in itself is interesting and people still study it, but it's not the same thing because um, this is not just an ancient history. It is basically um, a system of values, which is even today ahead of its time, okay, where we are still trying to implement those precepts and concepts uh, that to some amazing degree in great detail are, are, are outlined are, are in, in, in that text. And therefore, I'm the, dedicated to, to actually unraveling the text, not exactly like Rashi or Rambam or the famous commentators who come at it from the point of view of exegesis, meaning um, we believe in God, we believe this is the true word of God, and now it is up to us to try to figure it out, to try to to be as true to that word of God as we can in our lives and in our thoughts, right? That is the purpose of people like Rashi, and to, to make it accessible, more clearer to the average person in some sense, or maybe to share insights that he gained through, through the de- decades of study, you know, but always aimed at, 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 at illuminating the idea of God and the idea of of this great uh, supernatural transcendental uh, authority. Okay, and and but to me, irrespective of whether you believe or not believe in the presence of a of an outside of nature being of any kind. Okay, these precepts, this this ideology, if you will, of right and wrong, of doing unto your neighbor, of of you know not stealing and killing and so on and so forth. But beyond that. If you really go beyond that, you know, everybody knows about the Ten Commandments and so on. But if you go beyond that into the, the sort of the basis for, a, for how to live such a society, you know, how to organize such a, such, such a government, you know, the, the, the idea of, of how Moses, the great leader, who finally leads them out of uh, what is known as slavery, and we can discuss that a little later, um, because slavery is a big deal these days, you know, it's uh, racism and slavery and all these issues are still on the table. Uh, and of course, uh, the exodus is all about dedicate or liberation from a state like slavery, and we can discuss that. 
but but basically um, that that whole story itself is worth a focus because it is the story of a of a of a of a of a people who find themselves uh, occupied or or in some way oppressed uh, and and threatened with extinction and then gradually recovering and over a period of one or two generations and it it takes one or two generations that's in itself is an amazing story that it doesn't just jump and say okay this is what you got to do as soon as you leave that a foreign land you know settle down and form your government no they it recognizes how difficult and how long it takes to 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 achieve that state and i believe that we are still in that phase we're still trying to establish a civilization which in which can live up to these these uh, these these principles, and that's I think the key the key thing that attracts me. That the more I study it, the more uh, you know jaw dropping it is in terms of its accuracy about human nature and how people behave under certain circumstances and and predicting wars and you know all kinds of issues that are on the table today. There they are written up. 3,000 years ago by people that we would consider primitive that, in fact, preceded writing, by the way, pre- you know, preceded writing by about 800 years. I mean, that's history. We, we know that for a fact. And yet, out it comes out of an oral tradition where they pass it on from, from father to son to grandson, and no women are involved in this chain at that time. But basically, are dedicated their life, have dedicated their lives to actually memorizing every single word of that tradition so it doesn't get changed and it doesn't get altered and is transmitted for centuries exactly the way it was started. I, first of all, thank you. That's, that's, uh, that's uh, its own Talmudic passage <laughs> coming from you. Um, but I, I just would like to underscore that you use the term like I believe You've mentioned to me before that you don't believe in God, and 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 maybe it's not maybe and and I think today a lot of people struggle with that opinion. And in my mind, I always think of you, and I'm like, if only more believers had some of your your style of believing, we'd be better off. In other words, I, I don't know if you're a healthy skeptic or you're somebody who's like, look, I, I'm just making do with what's in front of me. But you certainly um, don't you don't have any a dogmatic bone in your body. And, and you're, and you're certainly somebody who's always searching for, for like how to, how to like actualize something. You're not a manifester. You're an actualization. Parents, I'll pay you later. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm trying to make a point here. Like, okay. like, like, do you call yourself an atheist? What? Do you call yourself an atheist? Well, that's a word, yes. If you we, if you mean I, I don't believe in the existence of a transcendental or a tra- supernatural being outside of nature, you're right. I do not, and uh, and I, I I better not believe in that because if there was such a creature or such a whatever, uh, you would have to create himself. So I can't call him a creature. But uh, but if if there was, I would have a few discussions with him. Uh, very parallel to the story of Elie Wiesel, which most of your reader, your your listeners, I assume, have heard of Elie Wiesel. Well, you know, he was not just a human being; he was an institution, and the institution, you know, had the Holocaust um, as as its uh, basic uh, basic uh, you know logo. Um, mm-hmm. But 
but you know, as you know, as you remember, uh, Elie Wiesel was uh, a little older than me, about eight years older or something. Uh, but anyway, he was Hungarian, a Jew, and he was being groomed to be a rabbi because he was such a brilliant young Talmudic scholar. But at the age of 14, just after his bar mitzvah, he was rounded up in the ghetto and taken to Auschwitz. And and there he he and his father were the last survivors. And eventually, about three weeks before liberation, which for him happened to be in, I believe, in in, uh, in Buchenwald. It could have been Bergen-Belsen, but I think it was Buchenwald. Um, uh, and his father finally died, you know, believe it or not, uh, from a blow to the head by an SS uh, officer uh, about three or four weeks before liberation. So that was the final blow to him. You know, they had survived together all this time. And you can imagine this Talmud Chochem, Talmud this, this the boy who was being groomed for a rabbi, who all his life, essentially, spent studying the Talmud and the Torah, suddenly being thrust into the hell of Auschwitz. And, and he has, a you know, his book, his famous book, the most, the most read book about the Holocaust called Night. And, and in it, there is this climactic scene where they're all lined up, uh, you know, at three in the morning in the freezing, in the freezing winter, in, in the middle of a, a ice cold winter day, uh, or not in the middle, in the very beginning of it, um, uh, on the, what they call the Appellplatz, the, the call up, uh, square. And, and there was, uh, three, three, uh, gallows set up. And, uh, in the middle of gallo was a 11 year old or a 12 year old boy about the same a little younger than Elie Wiesel was at the time. And this boy uh, was being hung for having stolen a, a piece of bread or something like that. Um, and so uh, the problem was that the the, the noose was, uh, was calculated for a, f- a full weight adult and this boy was too light. So instead of his, having his neck broken by the fall in the, in the noose, he was twisting in the wind and, and, and gasping for breath. And, and there they were all lined up and had to stand and watch this for, uh, it, it, uh, he figured it was maybe a half hour or longer while this kid was, this, this child, this boy was choking, choking to death. And behind them, there was a prisoner muttering to himself, um, where is God now? Okay. And Eli Wiesel, the Talmud Chochem, the young boy, turns to the man, turns around and says, there he is, he's hanging on the gallows. God is hanging on the gallows, right? So this is the climax of this book. And when he finally, um, you know, emerges and uh, uh, he becomes a, a journalist um, uh, working for an Israeli newspaper in Paris and in France, um, you know, he he went from Germany when he was liberated, ended up in France and learned French and so on. Anyway, um, he uh, he was encouraged by a very famous novelist. Uh, I think, uh, uh, let's see, Pierre, uh, I forget. Right now, uh, it's I'm skipping. I'm getting old, so I'm skipping some names. Anyway, um, he was encouraged by him to publish the book. And he would write this long preface, and therefore the publisher would accept it, et cetera, et cetera, and get it published. And they did, and it was night. Well, it turned out later on in some research that I did that um, the this this scene um, after after this 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 uh, kid, uh, you know, and where is God and all that, 
And then there was this struggle that uh, Eli Wiesel underwent, like Jacob struggling with, you know, with God or with the angels or whatever. He had this repetition of this of this scene in his uh, in his own experience. Anyway, he um, he ends up writing it all up in Yiddish based on his notes that he managed to keep uh, during the in the camp. So on these Yiddish notes. He he goes on some other uh, other assignment to Buenos Aires. Is it Buenos Aires? Uh, yes, Buenos Aires. And he uh, meets the Holocaust survivors there. There are quite a few there. Ended up there in Argentina, and um, and they encourage him to publish his memoir in a book called Polish Yiddin, which means in Yiddish Polish Jews, which was published by survivors from Poland for their own purpose for, to, to, for the, they, they told each other their own stories because they figured nobody else wanted to hear it or wanted, you know could hear it so they published a quarterly journal called Polish Yiddin and they asked Eli Wiesel the Hungarian Jew uh, who was not famous at all he was just a, a journalist um, to, to write it up and, and to publish it and he did and he published, that was the first version, and it was all in Yiddish. And I got a hold of it. I, I actually dug it up in Berkeley, in the Berkeley Library. Nobody had ever read it since they got it because, you know, there were only a few, maybe a thousand copies printed in the world. Anyway, I dug it up. I discovered it. And then I, of course, compared it with the French version, which was later translated into English. And sure enough, that whole story, that subtext, of Elie Wiesel struggling with the idea of God after his experience in the concentration camp, struggling after liberation, after liberation, and continuing to struggle with it. And eventually, of course, he becomes famous with the night with that book, and eventually emerges as the spokesperson for, for the Holocaust and became becomes the founding chairman for the um, Holocaust Museum in Washington, right? He became the first... Yeah and the founding chairman, and all of a sudden, and not all of a sudden, sorry, I should not say all of a sudden, gradually, over the years, he be becomes a chusid again, and he writes a dozen books about famous chusidim and tales, stories, chusidic tales, and so on. He spends the last 25, 30 years of his life promoting chusidism. They're all there, right behind us. Those are all Elie Wiesel's storybooks. Okay. Yeah, Hasidic, Hasidic, exactly. So, to me, one of the one of the puzzles, one of the real problems, and that's why I went into Elisel's story because it's so 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 pertinent to mine. I had the similar experience. I also remember I was converted to Roman Catholicism uh, as a matter of survival over there. I'm not making excuses. I was very. Uh, uh, very uh, impressionable, and 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 that uh, that religion with its uh, amazing f pictures of, of suffering martyrs and you know and 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 the apostles around Christ with the crown, you know, with the with the thorns and all that the horror stuff appealed to me because I that spoke to me as I understood my experience to be as a Jew, and then of course I found out that Christ and all the apostles were Jews. So that bonded me even more to those uh, to those characters, if you will, and I became a strong believer in what you might call the Judeo-Christian religion, 
where there's this one continuity without interruption, okay? Eventually, of course, um, I went on with my life and I, you know, I gave that up and I became what I was, always was, a Jew. I became a, a Jew, a conservative Jew and a traditional Jew and et cetera, et cetera. And my kids had bar mitzvah and bar mitzvah and, and they went to Hebrew schools and, and then we joined the synagogue and we lived the life of a typical assimilated, um, you know, uh, secularized, um, American Jew. That's that, uh, a Jewish family. Okay. But that remained unresolved and unresolved in my life. That how, how Elie Wiesel ever came back to where he was, you know, a Talmud Chochem and a believer in God and, and a rabbinic student, you know, after that experience in, in the, in the, in the, in the concentration camps, in the death camps and what, what, how he rationalized God at that time and how he saw him almost as, as a satanic, a satanic power to have allowed what he knew was happening to the Jews in, 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 in the world. Okay. I mean, to have allowed that, let alone, uh, you know, not stop it, but to have allowed it, it made you an accomplice in this, in this gigantic genocidal crime. And how could we then rationalize the presence of a God that was not Satan? That was the question. Okay. And, and that is something that I have struggled with until I realized that in fact, the solution is, is not to believe in the presence of such a being, but to whether, I'm not even going to say whether he exists or not, because I've gone beyond that. You know, I'm not an agnostic. That's an ambi-pambi position. <laughs> that, you know, that's one I, you know, where I can jump either way, like a, like a fake out in basketball, you know. Um, but, 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 but to me, it's better to, to, to assume the null position, what it's called, the null hypothesis, you know, the idea that you do not believe in something until it is absolutely proven that it exists, okay? But your original position is not a maybe position, but a negative position. And that is much harder to shove off into, into center, okay? So that's my position. And, and, and what I then realized very quickly once I was exposed to Joey and the type of, and the Torah class, what I realized, I didn't have to resolve that at all in order to appreciate the Torah, because even let's assume that God decided the hell with the earth. I've had enough already. Um, there was, it was a failed experiment. I'm going on to another universe. So I'm going to make myself absent from the, from the earth, whether he exists or not. He's gone from this earth. And now we're left with the Torah and it's the Torah that tells us how to live. Um, I, I, I don't have a follow-up to that because you can't follow up. <laughs> well, yes, you can. Well, I, I would say that, that an Elie Wiesel, I, I heard in his name that he went to Rabbi Menachem Schneerson and he said, how could I believe in God after the Holocaust? And the Rebbe looked at him and I'm sure it was with sorrow because the Rebbe went through his own heckle and, and uh, with the Holocaust, his own challenges. And he responded, so you want me to believe now in man? In other words, believe what? He said, if you don't believe in God, fine, but now you want me to believe in man. Oh, no. Okay. In other words, the Rebbe was telling him, the Rebbe was telling him, like, fine, you don't you don't want to believe in God because of the Holocaust, but you want me to believe in man for the because of the Holocaust? Like, like who's responsible for whose actions ultimately? Oh, no, no. In fact, what it teaches is to is tikkun olam, you know, the, the world is broken. At least the human world is broken. 
And uh, of course, it's the job of a someone, I won't call myself a Jew in this case, in this case, someone who inherited this masterpiece, someone who in, whose, whose her- legacy, uh, entire legacy is this Torah, right? This is what the Jews have got to give the world. This is our legacy, correct. Okay, so forget the God or not God, right? You, you, this is, who do you want to believe? You believe the Torah. That's who you believe, okay? That's why I study it. So you, you came to this class. It turned on uh, uh, a beautiful part of your heritage. It brought together some elements to your life. And when, when uh, Corona came in, you were one of the first people I called because, uh, you know, as a, uh, I wanted to hear from a doctor, you know, they're, how they're reading the data coming through. And what is <laughs> So this is this is in uh, March. I called you, and you said you told me something extraordinary, and maybe you should say it yourself about after you experienced the death and the horrors and the DP camps, and you came to quote the Western world, America and Canada. You said there was a feeling, and it disappeared, and now with COVID, it came back, and and you used the term that this is our date with history. Or our time with history. So, my qu- my question is not for you to re-describe that. My question is, what can you advise a younger Jew, you know, run of the mill, uh, 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 like your life post uh, Holocaust? You moved to the Western world. Essentially, from when you moved here, you had you know a life of academia and marriage and children and family and and. I wouldn't call it conventional, but nevertheless, it, it makes sense to what a Western, um, a Jewish uh, young adult is. Comfortable. It's comfortable. Comfortable, and yeah. and we're uncomfortable now, and and so so how would you? And I I, I hope the answer is going to come somewhat from the Torah. Maybe even you have an anecdote in the Torah that we could discuss something that that you found useful and like how to perceive these times and how to potentially you know grow from this experience, if not, you know, overcome it? Well, first of all, um, let me put it this way. I proceed from a memory, from an experience, which I think by all rational measures is far worse. I mean, this was not just merely um, shaking our, our world off center, but it was actually destroying our world, you know, basically. So, Having, having by, by sheer chance survived that, um, I came to this country, uh, to this continent, I should say. And I remember my first impressions of that. You know, I was, uh, I had just turned bar mitzvah in the DP camp. So I must have been around 13 and a half. In fact, uh, yeah, I was in March 1948 when we arrived here in Canada. And one in the first impression, it was just a kind of a subliminal sense of of uh, lack of danger, uh, of of a kind of an open open world where you know you were not afraid to go out in the street. You were not afraid that something suddenly will happen, and uh, you know there'll there'll be guys chasing you in uniform or something. Uh, that it was okay to register for a driver's license because. And nobody in the government, at least not then, um, was 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 going to you know uh, 
uh, keep a record and and, and, and and incarcerate you or something. Like everything that always goes through the mind of a European, even from the most Western countries, because you remember, even if you went to Paris or, in a, or, or England, if you checked into a hotel, the first thing they ask you is your passport. And, and then they kept your passport as long as you stayed in the hotel because, you know, it was required by some government agency for the hotels to report their guests and who was staying where and what because that was still this so, sort of um, uh, autocratic uh, uh, centralized uh, system where the citizens were sort of kept, uh, kept uh, you know, uh, Without real uh, knowledge of what who was calling the shots and what the what the real powers were and you know, all this shadowy stuff, and so suddenly you end up in this country where everybody, in a sense, whether they know it or not, are fundamentally optimistic about their future. They they believe that by applying certain rules like working hard, uh, staying out of trouble, you know, by not 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 attacking people and killing them or whatever, not breaking laws, they could really advance themselves. And, 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 and they had the sense of security. That's the word, this sense of security. That and the, By and large, that's been correct for 50 years or well, longer. True, even during the world wars. Because when you think about, I mean, compared to what world war to anybody in Europe was, compared to what the United States uh, experienced, I mean, there's absolutely no comparison. I mean, here is a country, a, a continent. First of all, it's a continent, not just a country. It's 50 countries, all right? It's a continent. And, and that means limited resources and endless protection on both each side by endless oceans, all right? So you're protected naturally, geographically. You have endless resources. You've never been bombed. You've never been occupied. You've never been conquered. You've never been herded into, into, into camps. You've never been interrogated by, and, 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 and tortured by police. You've never seen millions of refugees streaming down the roads and occupying every town and village. I mean, you've never had any of the experiences of any European in their living memory, you know, and, and in their legacy, you know. So this, this was the sense that I ended truly in a new world with reason to be optimistic, which was never attacked, never suffered the misfortunes that other people never had to worry about their back. Uh, you know, and it was all there just for applying a few good rules about uh, staying out of trouble and, and, and working hard, getting good grades in school and whatever it is, and, and just proceeding along a well-beaten path. You know, that's all it took. And to me, that was just an amazing uh, discovery as a young boy at that time. Now, all of a sudden, when this coronavirus hit, and I, I, being a doctor, I could foresee very early how this would spread almost uncontrollably because of the, the way carriers carry it and how two then infect four and four infect eight and so on and so forth. And it was inevitable. It couldn't be stopped. You could see in March already that that you could, you, this would multiply endlessly and it would be, God knows, the light of the end of the tunnel to coin, to coin a phrase, well, you know, who, whenever it would come. But for me, for the first time, I experienced that sense that suddenly history was challenging. That's what I meant by, by history. When history invades your private life, which is what happened to the Europeans, 
whether they were Jews in the Holocaust or whether they were Poles chasing Jews in the Holocaust, they were all Europeans. And they all came from this, this, this idea that, that the world is, can explode in your face at any moment and probably will. And Murphy's law always operates. If anything can go wrong, it, it does. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all of that, uh, means that history invades your private life. That's what it comes down to. And suddenly I felt that for the first time since I came to this continent, history was invading private life. History in the shape of a pandemic, a viral infection that spread without end, that killed people, that maimed people, that terrified people, that that undermined uh, economies, that suddenly shook the foundations of of this uh, of this uh, I I don't know what to call it I don't want to call it a civilization though it's fair enough because it also spread in Europe it it certainly shook the foundations of it uh, is shaking the foundations of uh, on, on which this civilization is based uh, and we will and by the way those foundations of course are to be found in the Torah so maybe the answer to your question is maybe it should be found in the Torah. But that's a hell of a job, isn't it? It is. So, <laughs> so, but so, so, I, well, I should. I mean, I'm going through, this is my date with history. And I'm certainly am looking to the Torah for answers because I feel like that's where my qualifications are. Um, my wife always reminds me to never give my own opinion, but to give a Torah opinion. And, <laughs> and, and the reason why she reminds me that or why I need the reminder is because in life, it's very easy to give your opinion, but the but but the job of a rabbi is to source it in our in our roots, so that it's not just an opinion, but there's also like, look, this has worked for us. It's not like uh, where where it hasn't worked; it has worked. So I, I'd like to put it to you, like, what part of the Torah comes up to you that would be useful for this time, for the way people think, and to sort of be grounded in that things are going to work out. Uh, what what narrative in the Torah would you uh, say? Look at that one. That one I think will give you inspiration. Well, obviously um, Moses himself is the hero, my hero, my my big. I mean, his life story is just the more you study it, the way it's presented in the Torah, uh, the 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 more mind boggling it becomes. I almost said miraculous, but <laughs> I stopped myself. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> uh, so, so if you follow in his footsteps, uh, in the Torah, in his footsteps, um, you're you're bound to experience a biography that is just unmatched for every possible human uh, emotion, including uh, you know such rare things as as heroism, uh, selflessness, humility, leadership, all as you know mixed into this one. And one of the amazing things about the Torah, after all, if you think about it as the five books of Moses, you know, you would think it's a hagiography. I mean, basically a book intended to glorify its hero, right? And yet it's not. At every point, it, it cuts Moses down to human size. At every point when you think, oh, my God, you know, what a special man, what a great guy. You know, it reminds you that he's just flesh and blood like everybody else. and he's like. A ordinary human who's been ignited by a passion, by a, a mission, I should say, the mission that God, of course, gave him. Uh, but, you know, we know in contemporary life 
there are people who are um, ignited by by passionate beliefs, by 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 missions, by goals, uh, without invoking the deity necessarily. Um, and so the first thing is, I was impressed by the by the life, and particularly the way this life is is portrayed in Torah. That's number one. Well, I just just to add, just to that, just to add, today this week is actually the Torah portion of the beginning of Moses's life. So it's certainly appropriate for you to bring it up because it is the it is timely. And and when it talks about his birth, I always like I actually did it once in an earlier podcast where I spoke about like we call him Moshe, even though Moses is the Egyptian name and he had a Hebrew name. His Hebrew his Hebrew name was Tevya, you know. Which means, yeah. which means good is God, but we call him Moshe because Moshe represents to lift somebody out of their difficulties. Well, and, it's also Moses, remember? And that exactly illustrates my point. I mean, if this were intended for the Israelites to follow as their, as their God text without any, any uh, you know, kind of changes and, 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 and uh, ma- manipulating the, the, the factual background to it, the historic background, they would never have allowed this great leader, this liberator, to retain his Egyptian name. I mean, that, that just boggles the mind. So so that gives you an example how 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 uh, how credible how credible the the, the account in the Torah is in a little fine point like the fact that they didn't change his name. It it remains that the fact is he was raised as an Egyptian. It's not even clear that he had an awareness, even though, you know, the interpreters desperately tried to show that Moses identified with the Israelites, and that's why, you know, he became their leader somehow, a self-chosen leader. But it's not at all clear that he identified with the, with the Hebrews, that in fact, when he got, stepped forward, and that's his first introduction to us, as a grown man, after having spent 40 years in, in the Pharaoh's palace and probably competing eventually for his throne, because after all, he was adopted by the princess as, his, as her son, which made him, a, a, you know, a, a competitor. Egyptian royalty. For, for, the, for the, you know. But basically, he, the, we are introduced to him in the most amazing way. How, I mean... He's walking down the street as a fully grown man one day, and he sees a taskmaster. That's the translation. The, 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 the um, um, what's his name? Uh, um, the, the King James Bible. Yeah, the, the, the English translation. Um, okay. I mean, the taskmaster. In other words, the capo, if you will, in the in the camp, or maybe uh, just a supervisor, or a supervisor of a work gang. You know the the boss in the work gang, and his job was to make sure that the guys were working, not goofing off. So he sees one of these uh, uh, bosses beating up. It doesn't say killing him. It doesn't say killing him. It doesn't exaggerate. It just says beating up this Hebrew, right? And what does Moses do? That's his introduction to us. He comes and he kills him. He murders the guy, in a sense. Because after all, the guy didn't get a trial, didn't get a chance to explain. I mean. It, and it doesn't say that Moses ever saw him do it before. I mean, basically, he sees a guy beating up on another guy, a, a helpless guy, and he kills him. And not only that, but before he kills him, just so we, so we understand that this is not 
uh, impulsive, un unpremeditated murder, because in our jurisdiction, an unpremeditated murder is not exactly murder, right? It's like manslaughter. Right. Okay. But the Torah understands that subtle, subtle difference. And it makes sure that we don't try to rationalize a way that it was an impulsive act, right? No. The Torah says before, when he sees the taskmaster beating up the Hebrew, what does he do? What does he do? He looks up and down the street. Make sure no one's around. Here, here is this prince, prince of Egypt, walking down the street with this long sword, <laughs> you know, dragging behind him. And he sees one of his own workers. I mean, the taskmaster is working for, for his father, for, for the pharaoh, right? And, and they're building the pyramids, the goddamn pyramids, you know? That's what they're doing. So he's walking down the street, and he sees one of the, his people making sure that this foreign group that was goofing off for centuries is now being forced to, to build, like everybody else in Egypt, is build these the pyramids. And, and what does he do? He makes sure that nobody sees him, all right? And then he, he smites the, the taskmaster. And, and while he, that we know for sure that he knows he shouldn't have done it, that there was a transgression, what does he do? He buries him in the sand. It says literally, he buries him. So there's no question of unpremeditated, right? Now I have my own peculiar additional explanations and I want to go into that because it gives you an illustration of what I find in the Torah so fascinating. Because it's a simple text, if you will, really simple. The words are simple. Um, and so here it is. Uh, it says, um, he looked up and down the street. And the usual interpretation, Rashi and others, uh, is he made sure that nobody else was there to see him. Right? That's the usual. There's a second reasonable uh, interpretation, which is that he saw this injustice, and that's the key point. Moses saw an injustice, he reacted to the injustice, and he thought that somebody else might have seen it too and have come to the rescue of the Hebrew. So while it was up, when he looked up and down the street, he realized he was the only one and it was up to him. That's how uh, I, I tend to interpret that, that he saw that as a call because he saw an act of injustice he looked up and down the street, nobody else there to come forth. It was up to him. Okay, that's my interpretation. Now there's a third interpretation, which is the kind of thing that in a way is characteristic of these noodling type of Talmudic scholars who try to twist and turn and, and find any possible explanation that leads to God. It's always leads to God, but it's twisted and turned and you know, it's, it's like a nightmare, okay? Well, th this is the kind of interpretation, the third interpretation. And that is that Moses was already at that time imbued with the spirit of, or a concept of a God who's transcendent, um, abstract, invisible, omnipre omnipresent. And if you, and then you say, oh, where would he get that idea? Well, as it turns out, historically, 50 years before Moses, and that's recorded history, 50 years before Moses, there was um, a, a pharaoh named Ikhnaton who decided that the priests had too much power and the way to eliminate the priests was to declare that Egypt 
only believed in one God, only one God. That decommissioned all the priests and made Pharaoh the the the, the, the priest to that one God. Is and that the, one God, as you know, was the sun God. Is this right? Freud's Freud's uh, interpretation? I wrote about it later. Sure, he wrote Moses and Maimonides. Um, uh, Moses and monotheism. Right. He, that was his last book in 1938 when he had fled from the Nazis. That's a whole other story, okay? That's mo Yes, that's Freud's take on this story, but that's another story. But what I'm suggesting to you is that one, one could argue that Moses was already imbued by the example of Ignaton, who had eliminated all the Egyptian gods, had decided that the sun was the only god, and the pharaoh was the only representative of that religion, okay? That made him the priest and the only priest. They took away their power, all right? And he actually destroyed the original capital of Thebes and moved the new, created a, built a new capital in the name of Ignaton, of the, of the god, you know, of the new god, god whose name Ray, I think. Ra. Ra or Ray, yeah, okay. And, and anyway, um, he, he removed all the signs of the old gods and so on and so forth. And this thing only lasted 18 months before the priests finally managed to poison him. Of course, he was a marked man from the beginning. But they poisoned him and immediately eliminated all signs of that particular pharaoh and destroyed the, old, the new capital and moved back to the old capital. And that was also the pharaoh that knew not Joseph, okay? The, 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 the new pharaoh that succeeded Ignaton and reverted to the ancient religion. And you could see how a guy like Moses, who knew he was a Hebrew, you know, probably, and that he was yeah. different from the others, he was always in danger, always being in competition. So you could see how he could figure out why Ignaton made a mistake. Where did he make a mistake? He started a new religion, a monotheistic creed, of which he was the main proponent, except that he he was eventually overwhelmed by, uh, outtricked and 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 killed by the priests. So where did he make the mistake? Well, you could see one answer would be in staying in Egypt. He made a mistake in staying in Egypt because you know the old priests were still lurking in the, behind every corner. But if he had taken his followers and moved them elsewhere, Egypt was a major major power, and they had all kinds of lands all over the place. If they moved and started outside of Egypt, he probably would have still been. And so Moses so finds the solution. He has to find a people which he will follow him because they need to be rescued, and they will have roots somewhere else, and they will be able to use an, a myth origin, an origin of myth. Now, that's, my, that's the kind of intellectual exercise that I love that is triggered by the Torah. But finally, therefore, the third interpretation of up and down the street when he before he killed the taskmaster is that he was already imbued by a sense of God, a God that is a just God, that hates injustice. And so he is looking up and down the street for the possibility that God would intervene in the in the struggle of the Hebrew and stop the taskmaster. And that was the third opportunity. And of course, that's a mystical opportunity. I don't believe that's probably true. But but 
the second explanation with the Ichnaton in the background and, and that whole story of the prince hitting out on the taskmaster is because he wanted to demonstrate to the Hebrew that he had the power to lead them out of trouble. Mm. Okay? Well, I, I like the first interpretation, um, um, sure. of course, but um, it reminds me of in Ethics of Our Fathers, there's a famous line where it says, uh, in the absence of, of someone, be the someone. And, and, and I've always felt that line very much that, that Moses is looking around and he's like, well, it's me. If, if, if I think this is an injustice of mercilessly beating on somebody and it should be different and I take notice, then I got to take notice. And I think this last uh, dialogue was an exact uh, uh, time frame of what our Friday learning looked like of uh, of you being, you know, telling me what you think it is and I tell you what you think it is. And us both being able to be like, wow, the same text is really feeding different minds and different and different styles and. And this class has non-Jews in it, and of course, you know, uh, men and women, and, and and different levels of intellect, and uh, and 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 I was just uh, absolutely blown away. And maybe the lesson I'm taking from this is that uh, Torah classes, at the minimum, uh, can heal us by one specific type of narrative and text can feed many different types of minds and also bring people together. Because even somebody who you would consider a different mind, let alone inferior, can see the text and have this other idea. And you're like, ha, another idea comes out of it. So it gives purpose. It's sort of like this idea that that is mentioned um, often by Hasidic masters. Uh, they they like to mention the idea that when you when you start when you do a good deed, you do a good deed. All right, but it's outside of you. When you study Torah, it becomes part of you. That means the 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 text itself it's yours the knowledge has been acquired by you so so we should all acquire a bit of Moses because we're talking about somebody who I guess lived the good existence while there was oppression going on and essentially had to take himself out of that and we all have an opportunity to do a little Moses type treatment uh, in our time today so I I find it very interesting that that's the text you brought up as inspiring well it's also the right partial as you said it's that's right Moses. But 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 the 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 key question then behind this question, this the, the we've been discussing, right? The key question is why Moses? Why did God choose Moses? What was there about Moses that made him choose Moses? And the answer has got to lie in this episode of the Taskmaster, because that's the introduction of Moses to history, to our history, right? So in this story is the reaction of Moses to injustice. So I think that the thing that made God choose Moses as the future leader of, uh, of his people, of his chosen people, is his innate sense of injustice, of justice, right? And that was that act. That act, he reacted, whether excessively or not, he reacted to the idea of a, someone in power, beating up on someone helpless and and and, and uh, defenseless. And that's what I think. And then and 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 history is from that story. It's from that story that things change for Moses, changes for the Jewish people, and essentially changes for history, because that's also the first time people rebel against a, a force that controls them in not just a rebellion, but a change of 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 
Um, well, we'll come to that, of course. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. We'll, so there's more. The slavery part and the rebellion part. I mean, everywhere in this thing lie what, what you might call gold mines uh, or, or mines from another oh, point of view, <laughs> you know, um, along the way, which, which are just unbelievably dangerous in some way. But on the other hand, really, really um, rich, rich and, and rewarding to study. Yes. Well, I, I would encourage any one of your followers uh, to start the Torah class of their own, if they're wherever they are. Um, they don't have to be Jews, by the way. I mean, in terms of uh, people, like you said, we have, of course, we have women, but we also have, I mean, one of my closest friends there, Creighton Jen Jenkins, is, is, a, is an, a devout Christian. Um, and he finds himself quite comfortable there. And, uh, and he finds that the revelatory, you know, that these things re reveal to him stuff that he could never imagine um, existed. So, so, yeah, I would encourage people uh, either to start, uh, like you start a book club, um, um, or, uh, or find one, find some place to study. Now, of course, he will find a Chabad place because there, there's a Chabad place under every tree. Uh, in the world, in the world, uh, that's true. But uh, and that's fine. He can study uh, in a Chabad setting. But I think it may be a bit much for your regular secular Jew to start out with a with a you know with a Talmudic uh, shuckling society. And that's really where your class, you know, the the San Francisco class took off. That you know, even though I was asked to lead regularly. Um, I was also, it was in context of me also being a participant regularly. So, so it was we had a rule before, before you came, we had a rule, no rabbis. <laughs> you know why? Because the rabbis came with an agenda. <laughs> yes, they had, they had a shtick. They, they, they had a sermon, you know, a drush, you know, they, they, they automatically, like I know, and I'm a doctor and I walk into a group. Uh, as a doctor, then everybody else becomes a patient. You know, if I'm driving, I'm a driver, but everybody else becomes a pedestrian. Um, you know, there, there, there are these automatic distinctions. Um, and, and so when you have a rabbi coming in, he, he figures he's, he's going to have to go to do his, his thing, his performance, which is to, to guide the, uh, the, the unwashed, you know, the, the, to guide. I shouldn't say that, but basically to his job or as a rabbi, is to is to is to guide them through the Torah, to interpret it for them, to 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 share his depth of knowledge or his her depth of knowledge, and and that's what's expected, and that's what they're going to give. But we didn't want that. We wanted someone totally ignorant to study up the night, stayed up the night before, and maybe looked up sources and maybe and and read the parsha if if that was his his or her turn to lead the group. All right. So we we originally wanted one of our people to lead the group, and it would also be uninhibited. You wouldn't have strange people coming in and dictating stuff and t telling them what to so do. Even when you invited rabbis, you essentially are saying that the group was held by the people. So yeah. that that was really where it emanated from, and I think that's good advice. That uh, you know, if you really want this to resonate, it's it's upon the individual to get together with friends and be like, let's. Do something super thought provoking and has extended roots, and and we definitely need something to 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 not just get past COVID as a pandemic, but but you know 
we were a little stuck. We have all this technology, all this instant consumption and, and all this instant gratification, but real life is not instant gratification. Real life is a series of growth and, and, and going back and forth and utter transformation. So for a human being to really live a full life and to have that moment of transformation, you have to reach back sometimes to move forward. And maybe this is as good as a time as any. I think maybe, you know, as a European transplanted to America and with this sense that for the first time in my experience, the American world has experienced history, uh, thrust upon it. I, I think perhaps um, the, the, the best outcome that I can think of, uh, you know, because the next question is, what lessons have we learned? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, it's far for me to teach people what lessons they've learned because each learned something else. But but the um, the uh, if I can say something that applies to everybody in this situation and coming through it, it's humility. It's it's this American exceptionalism. Somehow we deserve to be defended by two uh, uh, you know endless bodies of water. Somehow we deserve to have all these resources that gave us self sufficiency and independence. You know, somehow it was our doing that produced this history, right? This this situation. Not at all. It was mostly pure sheer luck, okay? And and it ended up that one group of uh, of people who came succeeded and other people failed and the, the indigenous populations were almost wiped out. They were the losers any way you want to look at it. You know, I mean, the history history is not does not make sense. That's another point. It history does not make sense. So it made no sense that the pandemic should strike you know, at the beginning of the uh, the 21st century and so on and so forth. It, it made no sense in terms of writing and, and figuring it out and predicting it and prophetic and all that stuff. Um, basically, the one thing that I think might be very useful to learn as a lesson from history, it's humility. It's somehow, like most, to be humble, okay? Even that Moses teaches, to be humble. And and, uh, and I think that's all I can say about that. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. And uh, we hope to have you back sometime. Well, we'll talk about uh, Holocaust, right? You wanted to do that. You're itching to do that. I think we could talk about anti-Semitism, Holocaust, sort of some deeper perspective. But uh, in the interim, I I just really, from uh, from my heart to yours, thank you for being on with us. And and I appreciate your friendship. It's my pleasure. And also... Listen, good luck to you and your enterprise. You know, you're you're a hero, really are. You know, you're you're bucking your head against particularly nowadays against the wind. And 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 I wish you the best of fortune and luck. Thank you. Because if anyone you know, should. I don't say deserves. I'm not talking about deserves because that would imply like that old American optimism. Right. But but no, I, I think if 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 anyone, if I can wish good luck on anyone, it's certainly you. Thank you, thank you. Well, blessings and blessings for health. We need you, Paris. We need you, Mendel. Thank you. I uh, just want to thank uh, Dr. Mike Thaler for joining us and uh, our producer Miriam, and uh, and uh, we look forward to continue great discussions. Feel free to email me with any questions. Word at rabbiparrots.com. Leave a rating here on Apple, on podcasts, share with your friends, and I look forward to continue this conversation of growth. I wish I could find you. You see your producer. She's a lot prettier than you. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Give her my best, my love. Best. Thank you.
Ali 